evening, and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you, along with Stephanie Burke, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz, the gang, all here together broadcasting live on WBSM via the Radio Pup app and on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. We have to make sure we mention the Radio Pup app, because a lot of folks are listening... You know, in, in places where they don't get the WBSM signal. So the Radio Pup app is a great way. Put it on your smartphone, put it on your laptop, whatever you need to use uh, to be able to tune in. And of course, if you want to see what's going on in the studio, Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com is the way to do so. And that's where you can also join in the discussion about the program. You just have to sign in with your Twitter account and use the hashtag SpookyLive. That's the way to do it. And things went pretty well, I'd have to say, by the way, guys. I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this all week long. Even though we talk all week long, we never mention this throughout the course of the week. But things actually went very smoothly last week with our Bridgewater Triangle show. It did. It went off really well. Surprisingly, it did. Yeah, I I didn't. I had. (laughs) It was almost like one of those. You know how, like. When you're a kid and you're learning how to ride your bike, you're like telling your dad, like, just don't let go, don't let go, don't let go. <laughs> and then you turn around and like he was, a, he's like a half mile behind you. He right. let you go a long time ago, but you're doing okay. That was kind of like how I felt, like knowing that the silent assassin was here, or are you magic mad tonight? I don't know why. Don't know. <laughs> knowing that you were here and that you were in the building, but you weren't in the same room. It was very weird. It's, I'm, I'm not yeah. used to that. <laughs> so I was like looking at you through the glass, like, yeah, I was peering in. I he saw was, you. He yes. was. But uh, it's it's nice to know that uh, you know we can be in separate rooms in the station at the same time, and things can still happen. Things can go up without a hitch. <laughs> right. Thank you to all the teams that uh, went out into the field for us too. I know Moniz, it was the first time you were uh, otherwise uh, charged with uh, being up at that UFO conference. Yeah. So it was the first time that you've ever missed the the Bridgewater Triangle investigation show. I I told them I was going to help them out with their audio visual, and then I realized after I had made the commitment that was the same date as our show. Yeah, we we tend to book that one kind of on the fly a little bit because it's all weather dependent. So it all depends. Like, okay, this Saturday night, according to King, uh, I'm sorry, Poor Richard's Almanac. I almost said King Richard's Almanac, but according to Poor Richard's Almanac, the you know the the uh, Venus will be over here and Mercury will be over here, and uh, you know the winds will blow from the southeast, so maybe it won't rain. That's pretty much how we determine it. And uh, we've, there's been some years where we've sent the teams out in the rain. You've been yeah, out there in the some of the, the rain, wet yeah. years. And then there was a year we decided, well, let's move it to August. Because mm-hmm. if we move it to August, then it's so much better for everybody until they got eaten alive by mosquitoes. And when uh, we risk the, when we started putting investigators at risk for Triple E, that's when we're like, yeah, I think we'll move it back to October. It's probably better that way. I don't know. Bug spray might not be enough. when you're out. We had a team out at Lake Nip. So I don't even think like a whole can of uh, deet, pure deet itself would have been enough uh, to counterbalance those mosquitoes. Well, it was the year that you guys booked it during a hurricane too. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 that got about 2011. A, we've got about a sixty percent success rate with picking the right date for that show. But this year was definitely one of them. Uh, so thank you to everybody, and of course we will uh, as as the uh, data that was collected comes rolling in. We will share it with you, the audience. And also, we want to share with you by using the hashtag SpookyLive on, on Twitter. And uh, you can join in with that right on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Coming up in just a bit, we'll be joined by our guest tonight, Styles White. He is the director of the new film Ouija. And if you have been seeing the trailers for it, seeing the commercials on TV, it's a very creepy film. 
Uh, it looks like it's going to be uh, a pretty good hit. You know, uh, this time of year, horror movies always do well. But it takes a special horror movie to kind of stay lasting in the public's imagination. We've had that the last few years, and Styles White has been one of the people responsible for those films. Uh, he and his wife both wrote The Possession together. And if you remember that, that was the story of the Dybbuk box. And now they are back. This is actually Styles' directorial debut with Ouija. And we were going to have Robert Murch joining us as well, the Ouija historian and expert. But uh, he is unable to join us tonight because something came up. And it's something of a personal nature, but it's also Ouija-related. So he wanted us to, to share this with the audience uh, as well to let them know. But uh, if if you know the history of Ouija, and we'll probably get into it a little bit, but if you know the history, you know about the Fold family being uh, heavily involved with the creation and the marketing of the Ouija board. Well, over the years, Merch has become very close friends with members of the family. And actually, uh, on October 22nd, Stuart Fold uh, passed away at 81 years old. Uh, and uh, it's to, just to show you what kind of a connection that Merch made with the Fold family, it actually mentions him in the obituary. Wow. Uh, in addition to all the family members and, and uh, about uh, Stuart Fold's life, uh, it said that he was the grandson of Isaac and nephew of William Fold, inventors of the Ouija board. He enjoyed hanging out and being part of the Ouija phenomenon with his adopted son, Bob Murch. Wow. So, you know, th- when that happens, when you're that connected to a family, he's been asked to speak at the funeral. Uh, so... Merch wasn't able to join us because he'll be traveling uh, to take part in this uh, in this funeral. So, our our condolences and and uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the Fold family and to Merch as well. So again, they won't be able to join us tonight. Uh, however, Styles White will join us in just a bit. We only have him for a brief amount of time uh, because you know he's he's big time Hollywood director. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> he is. He's got all right. kinds of things. Going. The movie just premiered last night. There's all kinds of things going on. Uh, so we're lucky to be able to grab him for just a little bit tonight uh, before he heads out. But uh, we'll talk with him about the film, about the making of the film, about the research that goes into this. Because a lot of people who write horror movies, and you guys have seen them uh, here, uh, uh, you know, the spooky crew here as well as you out there listening, you've seen some of these movies where you can tell that people are just taking something a little kernel of truth and trying to turn that into... That's why they, you hear all these based on a true story movies. And it, it's like they wrote a horror movie and then they could kind of tie it into this real thing. So it's like, let's make that loose connection and just go wherever we want to go. But Styles and, and, and Juliet, his wife, they don't do that. When they're, you know, they, they get heavily invested into the story and into the, the, the truth behind the story and into the, the legend and the lore behind it. Passion so. for their work. And it, and it shines through. I mean, I thought The Possession was a, a great film in terms of the, the story being told and the way that they were able to work the Dybbuk Box story in because the Dybbuk Box is something that, you know, we're not really sure if that's even a true story. Mm-hmm. If you get into the history of it, it, it could be total garbage. But they were able to craft a creepy enough story about it that they've made it part of the horror lexicon now. And uh, the same thing can happen with Ouija. You know, there's still a lot of people that don't believe they're anything more than a game. That's nothing more than a hunk of cardboard and a piece of plastic, and everything else is just all in our minds. Well, that's just as scary. <laughs> you know, that That's can true. be just as freaky. Stephanie, I know you use Ouija boards uh, from time to time. I have, yep. I had the opportunity at Edaville, USA to actually use one with you. That's true. And it was a little bit different. And we tried an experiment that night, which was a little we bit did. different as well. That was kind of cool. We, what, we want to explain to everybody what we did. Well, you, I was going to say, you can take well, over we, the story. We but, had somebody uh, with us who was visually impaired. Yes. 
So we thought it would be interesting to put her on the board. She mm-hmm. wanted to do it. She was asking. She actually asked. She was the first one to ask. So, and then, you know, from your perspective as somebody using the board, uh, what was that like to, to be working with somebody? Um, I already have a belief, and I know what, well, at, at least when I do it. Same thing as table tipping when I do table tipping. I know the energy that's moving it. I've never questioned the other people that have been with me only because I know I'm not the one that's moving it, and I know what is moving it. But um, for everybody that was there that didn't understand or had never done it before, um, there's no way that she could tell, you know, what I was doing, or there's no way that she could have moved what I was experiencing. So it was um, very interesting, I think, for the people that were standing by and watching. And for yeah, for a lot of people, you know, even seeing it happen, even taking part in it, right? They still don't believe. It. I mean, we went through that experience at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast as part of That's right. yep. uh, Terracon this past summer, where we had a couple there, mm-hmm. and we worked with each one of them separately on the board, and they couldn't believe it. Right? They couldn't believe, it. and then we put them on together, <laughs> and they still and things were still happening. Right. And they're still, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the EVPs matching what they were picking up on the board. Yeah, I mean, when you have that kind of uh, that kind of connection, that kind of verification, you really can't. And again, I'm not saying that it's absolutely 100, percent you know, some sort of a spirit doing it. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think, with your ability, Stephanie, that you can necessarily say that that's the case 100 percent of the time for 100 percent of the people that use it. No, it's not because what people don't realize is your own energy can move it as well. And if it's your own brain projecting things onto yep. the board and making your hands move the board but your own brain is also able to project those EVPs onto onto mm-hmm. some sort of digital recording that's just as fascinating to me that's, it is to me too it's it's almost like if it's something that's you know telekinetic if it's something that's psychokinetic on the part of a person mm-hmm. i would almost rather prefer that because that's kind of way more interesting to me than a ghost they're both interesting in their own ways, but you have to really know the difference between your own energy and your own energy giving you the answers that you might want to hear or what you're thinking and actual spirit energy, which is very hard to determine, very hard to practice, and very hard to communicate. But a ghost is a ghost. Whatever, However mm-hmm. you decide to describe a ghost, however you decide to define it, whatever eventually becomes proven as the definition of a ghost, a ghost is a ghost. So whatever phenomena that is... To quote Bill Belichick, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that you're doing with your own mind, well, that opens up a whole new world of possibilities because now you can harness that. Mm-hmm. And if it's happening and you can make it happen, you can figure out how to control it and you can figure out how to put it to better use. So imagine being there, uh, sitting on the couch and thinking to yourself, oh, this, this show is terrible. I want to change it. But the remote's way over there. I don't feel like getting up. You can just pull that thing over to your hand, Jedi style. The same way that you could possibly be moving the planchette on a Ouija board. Or if you've got the power to move the remote to your hand, why do you need the remote? Change the channel with your brain. Then. That's a good point. <laughs> That's where I thought you I'm were gonna going. I'm going to try that. Because that is very possible. It's been done in my household. Well, the, the best part, the best part about uh, I don't want to watch this show. The best part about that plan is your brain doesn't run on AA batteries that die right in the middle of you trying right. to switch with the channel. So, so you basically just need to have somebody with strange abilities be in your household at all times. That's fine. I would, I would actually prefer that. Like, uh, oh, we should go get the mail. Mm, nah, it's just bills. <laughs> just leave it there. 
Well, we will be talking with Styles coming up in about 10 minutes. We'll also take your calls as well throughout the course of the program at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. If anybody had the opportunity to tune in this morning to the Saturday Morning with Tim Weisberg show here on WBSM, I interviewed Jeff Belanger, our good friend, about the premiere of New England Legends coming up uh, this Wednesday at 8 o'clock on Rhode Island PBS. It'll also be airing Thursday, I believe, at 10 o'clock on the Springfield PBS station. And this is the latest edition of his New England Legends series. Uh, you've seen the, the Haunted Berkshires episode and, and the Stone uh, Places of New England. This is Maritime Mysteries, and part of it was filmed right here in New Bedford at Fort Rodman, Fort Tabor where we've done a few Legend Trips events, and I was able to take part, along with some of our Legend Trippers, in the filming of this episode, sharing what happened to us in Battery Milliken. And I can tell you, when you watch it, I, I haven't seen the whole thing yet. I've just seen the trailer, and it's amazing, like, just how it looks. I mean, this is a, a, a true, uh, brilliant production. They were nominated for an Emmy last year, just trying to put their vision on the screen. But that was... You know, like, let's just get it out there. Let's do it. Let's do it the best that we can do it. But now it's different because now they know what it takes Mm -hmm. to get nominated for an Emmy. And as Jeff was saying this morning, you know, it's an honor to be nominated, but you know what it takes to win. You want to try and up your game a little bit. So they've done that with this edition. Uh, So you'll have the chance to see it for yourself Wednesday night at 8 o'clock on Rhode Island PBS. And Jeff will be there in the PBS studios. That's cool. As part of the fall pledge drive. So normally when that pledge stuff comes on, I turn the channel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, or I'll I'll, de- I'll DVR the show and then just forward through the pledge stuff because I'm like, oh, come on, PBS. Mm-hmm. Like, how much money do you really need? pledge stuff on. Yeah, it's, every time there's a good show on PBS, it's right. big, it's like if I'd stop on the station and I'm like, oh, look, you know, uh, whatever. Then, uh, you Especially know. Christmas time with all the different concerts. And then you watch yep. it and you're like, this is so good, it must be pledge drive time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure enough, they come on in the middle. And... So this time, you know, I don't think I'll be fast-forwarding it because Jeff will be there and he'll be sharing some of the stories. And I don't know if he's going to tell this story because uh, he was so involved in the filming of the episode and, and helping with uh, all the production end of things that he wasn't experiencing the same things that Cindy and Frank Thibodeau and I were experiencing while we were just hanging around in Milliken waiting t- for the cameras to mm-hmm. roll. We're actually investigating at the same time. And it's the middle of the daytime on a Sunday afternoon in August. And we're standing there, and of course, being in Milliken, it's pitch black. Right. Doesn't matter what time of day is. I have uh, a 600, 600 lumen or 650 lumen flashlight that I had in there, and I'm shining it down there, and you still can't see mm-hmm. the other end. But we're standing there watching, and we see down the other end, there's a shadow figure, mm-hmm. and it's moving back and forth. Now, we've already cleared the battery. We know that there's nobody in there. We're watching it move back and forth, and it was shimmery. It wasn't like... You know, like a, a straight black-on-black shadow. It was like shimmery, almost like it was coming in and out of something. And we watched it. We watched it start to move closer to us. We would move closer to it. It would move back. And this went on for a good 10 minutes. And uh, it was just incredible, along with some of the other stuff that was going on. What was that? little predator imitation. Oh, okay. I, I, was, I, I, wasn't, I didn't see your mouth move, so... <laughs> And uh, so we're like, I'm, I'm looking at it, and we're watching it, and we're wondering, like, how can we record this? How can we realize that there's really no way to do it? We just had right. to kind of experience it. Uh, and it only lasted about 10 minutes, but then it was over with. And there was all kinds of other things going on. The, the creepiest part was, and we talked about this this morning, you guys know, you're familiar with the 
graffiti that's in there yes. in Milliken. And, you know, there's some of it is kind of intended to be evil, but you can tell mm-hmm. it's kids, like, putting up something stupid. When we went in there, into the area where we had the experience that we were chronicling, you could see there were some demonic symbols, some satanic symbols drawn on those walls that are serious business, mm-hmm. that are not kids messing around. And so Jeff was like, you know, we should, can you take a picture of that? Because I had my phone on me. He said, can you take a picture? So I took a picture and I showed it to him on my phone. Mm-hmm. Two days later, he sent me a message saying, can you email me those photos? Because they wanted to include them in the production. Sure. Yep. I opened up my phone. They were gone. Couldn't get them off my phone. Good. Couldn't find them. They weren't <laughs> on the memory card. I went into the, you know, to the files on the phone. I connected to the computer, looked in there. Gone. We didn't delete them. They were on there because we were looking at them repeatedly while we were there. So, uh, And I looked at them in the car when I got back to the car because my first thought was, I'm going to send these to Keith Johnson and see if he can tell me what they are. And I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll do it when I get home. And then I got excited because I bought a clay pipe and... <laughs> You know, so that, <laughs> that took a, but uh, I just I could never find them again. So eventually, I'm going to get permission to go back in and mm-hmm. take some new photos and take them on a couple of different devices to make sure that when I leave there, I have them. But uh, it's just it's one of those things where you know that you're dealing with something that is serious business mm-hmm. when you see that. So, and I know Stephanie that you've told me repeatedly, kind of stay out of there. Yeah, but doesn't mean you're going to listen. Nope, definitely. Not. <laughs> but again, I have to I have to stress I have permission. We get yeah. permission to go there for our Legend Trips events and for filming. And people think, oh, well, you know, Jeff went in there and filmed New England Legends, so we can go in there and film our show. No, you can't do it. We had all kinds of permits and permission from the city of New Bedford. Insurance. From Fort Tabor. Yes, they had to take out insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's not cheap. The insurance for filming is not cheap. The event insurance that we carry isn't cheap either, but right. filming insurance is, is far worse. it's highly worse. dangerous to go poking around in there during the day, during night, doesn't matter. It's not... The floor is missing in a lot of places. There's holes, yep. big, giant, gaping holes. There's all kinds of things to trip over to cut yourself on. You never know who you're going to come face-to-face with. And, and the living. Living. Yeah. That's that's the worst part about it. I mean, we were there one night for an event, and we had drunk kids walking in telling mm-hmm. us to get out. That's the least of all worries, especially in that area. Right. And so if you've never uh, taken part in that and you want to, we are planning on returning to Fort Tabor for another Legend Trips event this spring. That's so awesome. So they, they've asked us to come back, and now it's created such a buzz mm-hmm. from the f- first few events that we've done there. And, of course, New England Legends will be huge. So that's got a lot of people interested in uh, coming and taking part. So. We will do that for you coming up this spring. I think our first Legend Trips event, though, of the new year will be at Lizzie Borden's. we got to set the date, but usually we try and shoot for the weekend after Valentine's Day. So yep. we should have an announcement forthcoming soon on that as well. And uh, New England Legends, again, premieres 8 o'clock on Wednesday on Rhode Island PBS. You can order the DVDs by going to ournewenglandlegends.com or you can go to jeffbelanger.com. Those are your opportunities to purchase the DVD. But later on tonight, at the end of the program, we will give you your chance to win a set of all three New England Legends DVDs. Uh, You'll be able to win them. Uh, It's one of those kind of win them before you can buy them type deals. Because Jeff is getting in the latest disc on Tuesday, and he will ship it out to you as soon as it comes into his possession on Tuesday. So you will be amongst the first people to have a copy of this. And uh, so you'll have your chance to check it out. And this goes to anybody, anywhere. Let's try and keep it to the United States, though, because they give you all... I know like some DVDs won't play in other countries. Is that still a thing, Matt Costa? I think so. Region yeah. region DVDs? Yep. So we'll try and keep it to... You How have to be you know? a U.S. winner. Hmm? How do you know? 
I, well, sometimes I ask him questions and he doesn't know what I was saying because he was doing something else over there. He's running the whole show with Spooky TV. He is. He definitely is. But yeah, just, just curious. Just it's saying. Called, uh, P- it's called PAL. P-A-L. And then yeah. there's uh, NTSC. Just saying, you know, you got to up your game on the Spooky TV after we last do. week. We had know, a real, we need, uh, we need real more, director. Or Star Wipe. <laughs> we had a real director sitting over in that chair uh, when Aaron Cadge was here last week directing Spooky oh, TV. And he didn't show up this week. What the heck? But you, you, he said we can call him. <laughs> but you'll notice, too, that... He's probably uh, setting up his uh, Halloween display. When you do it, that's true. When you do it, though, we are able to upload it to, to the internet afterwards. So. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Aaron. Just saying. Oh, I know. He was so apologetic. It's he like, dude, so it's upset. not your fault. That was, it, that was like the least problematic thing that happened. Ever. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> During all the Bridgewater Triangle. <laughs> our, last, our last concern about uh, last week's show was whether or not the YouTube video was going to load right. up. Uh, but speaking of real-life directors, we will have one coming up in just a few moments here on WBSM when Styles White, the director of Ouija the Movie, he will be joining us to talk about the new film coming up. Stay tuned for that. We'll be back in just a moment with more here on Spooky South Coast. <laughs> Back to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke, the silent assassin Matt Costa, and science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are honored to have joining us right now the director of the new film Ouija, as well as the co-writer, along with his wife, Juliet Snowden. Styles White is joining us on the phone. Good evening, Styles. How are you? Hey, guys. Happy to be here. And uh, we're so glad to have you back. We talked to you, of course, uh, when The Possession came out a few years ago. And uh, now you're here to join us to talk about what is your directorial debut, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, we talked a couple years ago um, on the possession, and it seems like uh, Juliet and I have this affinity for uh, haunted and strange household object movies. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the difference, I think, is uh, when, when you're able to take a, a good, solid legend like the Dybbuk box or the Ouija board and be able to put it into the modern perspective of horror, that's, that's a pretty good thing, because a lot of people would look at a Ouija board and think, you know, Go back as far as Witchboard in the 80s. They're like, yep, that story's been done, but you found a way to take it in a new direction. Yeah, I think for us what uh, what initially attracted us to this idea is, um, to be honest, we had sort of been toying around with the idea of a, of a seance movie, a modern-day horror film that was based around a group of characters who needed to conduct a seance and make contact with someone or attempt it, because it just seemed like it was the time for that kind of idea. And, you know, culture-wise, we're, we're very much in a place right now where we're all on our cell phones and computers and iPads 24-7, and the idea of, uh, in the modern setting, a group of characters who gathered around a table uh, and conducted a seance felt like a, a very traditional classic idea in the modern setting. So when we got the call to see if we were interested in doing something based around the Ouija board, it seemed like the perfect uh, opportunity to use this real-life object that everyone was already familiar with and try to tell a, a, a modern-day seance story around that. When, and, but when trying to do that, I mean, you have to take into account, too, the modern perspective and, and, and uh, the modern uh, 
kind of stereotypes toward the seance as well. Yeah, I mean, it's um, Juliet and I obviously are, are researchers and, and students of all kinds of phenomena and uh, weird episodes and things that if you know from the past and his, historical incidents and, and trying to find a, a, a full length movie spin on that. Um, and so thinking about the idea that uh, trying to make spirit contact during the Victorian age and the popular, popularity of spirit boards, talking boards, Ouija boards in the late 1800s, early 1900s, really before, you know, radio and TV were, were, became the predominant, uh, you know, electronic household devices uh, that the family would gather around, um, we, we knew that... Uh, a modern day telling of that needed to uh needed to sort of pay homage to the the past but make sense of why modern day characters would would need to turn to this with all the other things available to us and you know ghost hunting and EVP and, and everything like that and we just we loved the idea that a, a group of young characters had recently lost a best friend and there were mysterious circumstances around that death and because our main character Lane played by Olivia Cook uh that she had played the Ouija board with her friend who died when they were little girls she thought maybe that's a way uh, I can connect back with her um and try to reach out to the spirit realm and of, of course Olivia Cook uh people know her from the Bates Motel series and and she's somebody that has quite a a following I've noticed uh over the last couple of years but it it really seems like at least in just the trailer you can tell you know she's being dealt with a lot of emotional material to deal with in addition to all the regular horror scares and thrills uh you know you can see that uh, in in the character you can see the weight of that friend's death really uh showing on her Yeah that's great and to be honest that's why when we when we were originally thinking of this role, we knew we knew this character was was carrying the emotional weight of the story, and we were thinking about young actresses that that you could really believe in in that uh, in that situation and dealing with those emotions. And because, as you know, when we make horror films, there are a lot of uh, traditional screaming and and going down dark hallways that you shouldn't explore. And there's a lot of um, in addition to uh, the horror stuff, there's actually a lot of silent acting. There's just a lot of being alone and and hearing something and turning and exploring and letting the fear and the horror and the suspense of what's on the other side of the door register on your face. And uh, when we auditioned Olivia, she just she conveyed all of that right away and we knew it was her and we knew we could build a really interesting cast around her and uh and have an interesting story well you mentioned uh, you know some of the the shots and, and the setups that people are used to in a horror film and you know some people look at a horror movie and say that a lot of it can be formula and some people look at something like coca-cola and say hey that's a formula you know so there's like a two ways of looking at it because one is kind of something that people look down upon and one is a way that people say is a tried and true uh, way of delivering the people what they want and so there's got to be i'm sure a mixture of that in your mind as both a writer and a director of a way to you know have the familiar uh, themes and tropes of a horror film, but at the same time to do something different. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a reason why why a lot of the tropes work and why they're scary to us is because they they mirror something about our actual world that is frightening to us. And 
you know, if you go back to one of my favorite uh, horror films that's really a, a seminal movie for me is John Carpenter's Halloween. And what I loved about it is it looked like it was the first horror film I saw when I was a kid where the neighborhood really looked like a, a, a real neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, where I could live. And people walking to their friend's house across the street and uh, babysitting kids next door. And it looked it looked like the real world to me. And the idea that you could be uh, upstairs in your bedroom and look out the window and see a man in a mask standing there amidst the laundry blowing in the wind was was terribly frightening to me. Uh, and, and these were all daytime scenes. If you think about Halloween... Uh, I'd say a good 70% of the movie is in the daytime, and it's very scary. And and I thought when we were coming up with Ouija, I wanted it to have that same feel. I wanted it to have that same neighborhood feel of young characters in their lives and, and being contained maybe not so much in a house but in a neighborhood and walking to each other's houses. And and so I think I think what's scary about a lot of horror films is if we are – in our house late at night and we hear a sound and we know all the doors are locked, our mind immediately goes to terrifying places. And we want to go venture into the house to make sure that something isn't really there, but it's terrifying to have to do that. And I think as an audience to watch characters, um, what's fun in a horror film is uh, a character can go investigate and explore, and unfortunately there there probably is going to be something there. There probably is going to be something supernatural or, or a killer or something terrifying there waiting for them in the shadows. So those tropes definitely work for reasons because they strike at our fears of, of you know, the, the, the fears we have on a daily basis and just turn on the news. And I, I think the zombie genre, uh, I thought it was, I thought the z- zombie genre would have, would have run its course about five, six years ago. It just keeps getting uh, a second wind. Right. It seems like every time there's a, you know, I, I think because of the Ebola story, we're good for another two years of zombie stories because there's something that the fear of zombies really is our fear of of viruses and fear of diseases and illness and it being passed on and catching things from, from other people, just the fear of being uh, out in society and um, and I think a lot of horror films that are stories about people contain, contained in their houses with some kind of supernatural phenomena is just inherently scary to us. I think it was scary to people back in the late 1800s when they were playing with the spirit board, and it's it's still scary today. Well, and I think that that's what's great about this and, and having this movie come out in this time period is people are, you know, we look in the paranormal field and everybody's about whatever the latest devices they can get their hands on, however fancy the tech can be. They're carrying around cameras uh, to go into haunted houses that I'm sure cost more than, than some of the stuff that you learned on uh, as you were getting ready to, to become a filmmaker. But sure. the difference between that is, is is the paranormal field has gotten into these devices. The, the, the general public is seeming to turn away from that and be like, no, we like the Ouija boards. We like people that are just walking around talking in dark in the dark, holding hands in front of a table full of candles. That's what's starting right. to creep people out again. Yeah, and and what's what's interesting and why I knew we were on to something good when we started writing the screenplay for Ouija is uh, there was an announcement about it in the in the papers or something, and uh, our friends uh, knew that we were now going to be working on this project. 
and people that we had known for years in just you know everyday settings, uh, parents at our son's school, suddenly were coming out of the woodwork to tell us their true life Ouija board stories. Uh, things that had happened to them in college when they played in high school. And, I mean, it was one story after the other, and it felt like everybody had one. And I knew that we were tapping into something that that had a real relatability to a lot of people. And um, I, I, in our research, we had, you know, at really the height of uh, the spiritualism movement in this country, I mean, statistically, I think... I think a majority of households had some kind of talking board or Ouija board in their house as they were attempting to uh, communicate with the dead and deceased loved ones. And so uh, I don't I don't think that ever really um, the fascination with that and that we can we could go to a toy store and get a Ouija board off the shelf or that at your grandparents' house you would open the game closet and there would be all the board games and invariably there would be a Ouija board sandwiched in there among the others. So it was um, it was nothing that we had to explain uh, and justify of why a Ouija board would be in someone's house. Now, the particular door that our characters unfortunately open in the movie, that's where we could be unique about it, but... Uh, I love that we could just jump right into a seance story and the audience could be like, yeah, Ouija board, trying to talk to a dead friend, and we're ready to go. Now, from a, uh, from a technical standpoint, too, it must be a lot easier and a lot more freeing for you. Did you know when you started working on, on the script that you would be the one helming the film as well as the director? That's right. Uh, the, when we had the initial meetings, it was to uh, it was to write and direct, and for this to be my first uh, my directorial debut. So I was approaching it from the very beginning, knowing that I had to uh, I would be responsible for casting it and shooting it and picking the locations and designing the unique Ouija board for our movie and figuring out uh, all the scary circumstances that could happen once the characters. Uh, you know, got in touch with the other side, so to speak. So for you then, is that more freeing as a writer? Because now you're writing with your own vision as the director in mind, or does that make you kind of second guess what you're writing, saying, wait a minute, how do I write the scene? Because how am I going to pull that off when it comes time to put it in front of the camera? Yeah, there was definitely, I could not pass the buck to anybody else. Uh, it was it was definitely all on my shoulders and uh, and the very talented crew that, that I had assembled. But yeah, it did make me think uh, that when I was writing a scene when Juliet and I were trying to figure something out uh, that that we had to we had to know exactly how we could pull that off and if I didn't know I would uh, I would talk to the you know the camera department my director of photography and we would we would have to figure out different things uh, location wise I mean that was one thing I really encountered on this is we had written it there were certain scenes that we had we had um, written and there were there were certain elements of the main house the main location that we knew we needed to have for certain sequences and, and scares to play out so once it was ta- once the script was approved and we began the location scouting process i had to find i had to find a place that that would give me everything that i that i had written so uh, I was sort of reverse engineering now. I had written it, but I had to find the place that where this could all work, um, and it was it was challenging for sure. 
And you also designed or, or t- took part in the design of a special board for use in the film? We did, and that was, a, that was an interesting process that, that, uh, that I really worked a lot with, uh, with the producers on this film. We obviously, there have been appearances of Ouija boards in previous Films. They've made cameo appearances, the, the two main ones I can think of specifically. The Exorcist, obviously, mm-hmm. makes a very famous appearance. And in the first Paranormal Activity, there's an, an interesting Ouija board cameo. But because it is a trademarked uh, property of Hasbro, uh, before that it was owned by Parker Brothers, and then Hasbro bought Parker Brothers. So it's a, it's a Hasbro-branded product, and... And because we made the movie for Universal and they had a, a deal with Hasbro to make movies based on some of their their games and toys and, and products, we were able to make the official a, a movie officially about the, the real Ouija board and really use the name and use all the lore and legend uh, that comes with the, the history, the long history of the board. And uh, and I like the I like the traditional look of the Ouija board. I love the sun. I mean, that was the one I remember from my grandparents' house. It had the sun and the moon up in the corner and the yes, no, goodbye at the bottom. I love the font of that alphabet and the faux wood grain on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, before it was a faux wood grain, they were actually, you know, printed and wood burned onto actual wood. And I, I wanted to retain a lot of that. So we we tested a lot of boards because we also knew it would be played in the dark with candles or lamplight. And we we had a traditional-looking board, which was the lighter board with dark lettering. And then just for fun, we made a almost a negative uh, copy of that, where it was a dark board with white and light letters. And when we started doing camera tests with it, the dark board with the white letters just looked really cool. And it looked... It looked different enough that you would think there's something unique about this board. Maybe there's a special history to it, and when things start going bad, you really believe that the characters are motivated to try to figure out, well, where did this particular board come, you know, where did this one come from? Because it doesn't look like your everyday run-of-the-mill board. So it was a fun design process to really figure it out. And what we also liked is that... uh, we went online and looked at all kinds of custom-made boards, and throughout the ages, uh, one th- obviously when you go buy a Ouija board, it comes with a planchette in the box. It's a it's a plastic piece with a little plastic clear window. But we also saw that a lot of people would create handmade versions of planchettes and carved wood and more glass lenses and really cool looking. And so we we knew we wanted to create a very customized planchette for the. Uh, for the movie as well, and, and tested out all kinds of versions until we until we finalized the the hero planchette as we called it. Well, looking at the at the trailer for the film, and, and I don't think I'm giving too much away because it's it's in there in the trailer, but it looks sure. like the planchette serves a dual purpose in the film. In addition to being used on the board, it actually seems to have a another purpose for those characters. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun to. As I said, it was fun to actually, beyond just making a seance movie, because we could have just made a movie called Seance, and it, and it could have been any, maybe we didn't even need a spirit board, but because we were actually able to use the real Ouija board, when you research the Ouija, there are all kinds of, when you buy the, the game, 
there really aren't any rules that come with it. It just tells you to put your fingers on the planchette and ask questions, and the and the mysterious oracle will answer them. But urban legend-wise, when you go online, there are all kinds of rules that people have developed over the decades of the do's and don'ts of playing with the Ouija. And so we knew we wanted to create some core rules that the characters follow and believe in, and out of all of the, the urban legend rules that we came across, the three that we really liked that were interesting to us were never play in a graveyard, um, always say goodbye, and never play alone. That seemed really edgy to us, and, and I like the dare quality of the Ouija board to begin with. It's, it's sort of that final, that final barrier to cross of... Uh, you know, if you're a young person, if you're a teenager, if you're a high schooler, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of dares that you would probably go along with. But I think once someone dares you to like, well, you want to go to a graveyard and play with a Ouija board, I think a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't be brave enough to cross that line. And I love that I love that idea about playing the game. So those were the core uh, rules that we came up with. But it was also fun to come up with other our own urban legends about the game and one of them was uh that there was a saying that you needed to say at the beginning of a Ouija board session which was uh, as friends we've gathered hearts are true spirits near we call to you i liked that that summoning and that calling of the spirits and the other idea was that once you played you could lift the planchette and if you looked through the lens there it was it was the eye to the other side maybe you would be able to see a ghost that seemed like like kind of a fun slumber party idea that that girls would have come up with to try to scare each other and so that was a that was a cool idea that we we threw in the movie as well now, I, of course, uh, until anybody sees the movie and, and sees what goes on in the film, nobody really knows how it's going to end, what the end result's going to be. But right. do you think that this has the potential to be something that there would be a franchise based around it? Or did you conceive this as being like a one-shot, you know, one one story to be told? Yeah, I think I think the movie that we made that's out now is uh, is definitely one particular story that's told about this particular group of characters and their session with a Ouija board and the the door that they happen to open and i think i think what's what can be explored further in future versions is that there are other characters and they have another need or someone that they're trying to reach out with or some question that they're trying to answer and they turn to the Ouija board and they open a different door so imagine a long long hallway and there are dozens of doors, and I think each door leads to a uh, can lead to a different uh, scenario. So I think I think the board itself, and just the nature of how the game is played, and maybe not quite being sure when you do attempt to make spirit contact. We always said in in meetings when we were developing this movie that the Ouija board is more like a phone. You can make a call, but you're you may not be quite sure who's going to answer. Wow. Excellent point. Now, one question that I will ask you is, uh, it, uh, and of course, you're still in the process of getting out there and talking about this film, promoting it, and seeing what happens with this, but are you already working on, on the next project, yourself and Juliet? We are working on, on something else. We are. We are already at, the, at work on our next script, and... Uh and we're very excited about it. Let's just, I, I can't, I cannot tell you what it's about, but it, it's, um, let's just say we'll, we'll probably be back on the radio talking about it in, in a few years because it's, it's based on, uh, 
a phenomenon that's uh, that's very interesting, and I think will be interesting to your listeners. And um, we want to we want to explore a, a different kind of phenomenon and and tell a very a very interesting and and I hope uh, exciting story about it. But that's uh, all I'm really able to say. I love it. I love it. Just that tease but, is enough for me. And ju- but just to say more um, more strange things. And and uh, and I, I can understand if you can't talk about this either. But the the Poltergeist uh, reboot that had been talked about that you guys have been working on is that no longer sure. uh, in the works or? No, actually, yeah, we that was something that we we worked on a while ago, and uh, it was with a previous incarnation of of the studio MGM, and then I believe they changed uh, hands or new owners came in and, and new people are running the company. Um, and so we were our our version was was put on the shelf and put to the side in the restructuring of everything but but fortunately for all of us uh fans of horror movies and um the producer Sam Raimi picked up the project and he he commissioned a a different draft on it and um I think they've already shot it and funny enough uh in the editing where we were working on Ouija, uh, the Poltergeist movie was editing literally next door to us. Wow! So uh, by by coincidence, um, that was that was happening next door. So uh, good news for everybody. I think the the movie is slated to come out uh, next summer. Actually, summer 2015. Well, you know the good news for you guys, you avoided being part of the Poltergeist curse. So hopefully that doesn't uh, rear its head on the new production either. Yeah, it, but you know it, it's funny. Um, um, uh, I'm actually Facebook friends with Oliver Robbins, who played uh, the son mm-hmm. in that movie, and and we've we've traded some fun emails over the years. And um, you know, obviously Steven Spielberg was the was the writer and, and producer of that movie. I don't know if he was very much cursed <laughs> after. No, that I think movie. he did okay. He did, he went on to do pretty okay, and and so did uh, Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams. So. Um, yeah, but uh, but um, people people ask me on Ouija if we experienced any kinds of real life uh, real life episodes, and um, uh, unfortunately, I cannot report any any real life strange paranormal uh, phenomena happening on our set. Although we were shooting in a in a house out here in Los Angeles that was built in in 1895, so almost a 120 year old house. Big uh, Tudor revival, three stories, huge basement, um, and the house throughout the years has had various owners. and And I think at one point, maybe in the twenties, it was possibly a, a house for single mothers or wayward women or something like that. So it it definitely felt like a place where a lot of a lot of souls had passed through those rooms before us. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck with the film. Looking forward to seeing it. Thank you, guys. All right, take care. Have a great night. That is Styles White. He is the director of the Ouija movie, Ouija the movie, and uh, we will definitely give you a review of it once we get the chance to see it. We do have to take a break right now for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll have the week in weird. We'll also talk about some other paranormal topics. We'll take your calls as well, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420, and you can join us in the chat 
on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com by using your Twitter account and tweeting with the hashtag SpookyLive. Let's see if we can get some conversation really flowing there. We'd like to talk to you, whether it be through Twitter, whether it be over the phone. Stay tuned with more of Spooky South Coast in just a moment here on WBSM. Back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke, the silent assassin Matt Costa, and science advisor Matt Moniz. And great discussion in the first hour, talking with Styles White, the director of the film Ouija, which I, I know they're saying Ouija with the movie, but I'm still saying Ouija. I don't think anybody knows what they want to call it. Well, it's it's either either or is acceptable. If mm-hmm. you talk to, to Bob Murch, if you talk to Karen Dolman, they'll both tell you that either is acceptable. Uh, I believe that uh, I believe Murch says Ouija and Karen says Ouija. Okay. I think if I'm if I'm correct, uh, I know Karen definitely says Ouija because I remember teasing her about it. But <laughs> it doesn't really matter which way you call it. Both are accepted. Both are correct. But uh, you hear the the voiceover guy in the trailer Ouija. <laughs> so I'm like, that's the way that they're promoting it for the film. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I think most people probably say it. But Yeah, it's spelt wee job, but... No matter how you say it, it still looks like a creepy movie. And you know... It does. We, uh, Matt, you were talking about, you know, checking out ratings for horror movies, uh, you know, checking out ratings for the movie online. And yeah. I think horror I, movies are a different animal when yeah, it comes you to how you, you rate really a movie. You can't really trust a review for a horror movie. You have to just watch it yourself. Because everybody internalizes that fear differently. Every, everybody yeah. hates a horror movie when it first comes out. Everybody does. Well, because no it's not The Exorcist. Yeah. I refuse to watch any of them, so... <laughs> you don't watch any horror movies at all? No. So there's, like, horror movies that you haven't seen? Yep. You haven't seen The Exorcist? Nope. Poltergeist? What? I've seen Poltergeist. All I've three? Seen parts of The Exorcist. I don't know if I've seen all three, but... Um, the original Amityville Horror? Nope. The Omen? Mm, I think we did watch that one. It's just Hocus Pocus and that's it. I like Hocus Pocus. <laughs> you have to think, when you get woken up in the middle of the night by spirits standing in your bedroom, you don't really need a horror movie. That may be true, but... I mean, at the same time, you also, you know... Go into dark places and look. Yeah, for and people yeah. use that as a reference point. They they use these topics as reference points in a lot of what you do. So you would think like, you know, like when someone when you're dealing with something and somebody's like, oh, just like in The Exorcist, you know, you kind of got to know what they're talking about, right? Um, I guess I haven't heard that too much, but I don't like horror movies. I oh, see, so it happens to me all the time. You obviously have never been on an investigation when people are throwing up pea soup and their head is spinning around. I've come into contact with some things that would scare the pants off of people, but. To me, it's like I know how to handle it in real life. Just the whole Hollywood aspect of it scares the crap out of me. I don't like it. Well, hey, to to each their own. Right. Some people like cucumber pickled. (laughs) I was waiting for it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the important thing is is that, uh, you know, when it comes to a horror movie, you got to experience it. It's not just a matter of watching it, breaking it down, and critiquing it. When you do that, you lose sight of what it is that's happening. And and I know that based on uh, the script of The Possession, I'm looking really forward to seeing this. I hope to see it this afternoon. My local movie theater was not playing it, so I wasn't able to, to get out and see it. I don't know what's going on with my local movie theater. but I don't know. I don't know why you don't have the big horror movie release that comes out the week before Halloween. 
Hmm. You'll have to write a complaint, maybe get some free popcorn. I will. Actually, that theater's been pretty good over the years about because I had to write a lot of complaints about it. I'll never forget, I went to go see Once Upon a Time in, Me- in Mexico there, which, yeah, come on, it's not that great of a movie, but, you know, I had already seen Desperado, and mm-hmm. so I really wanted to see this movie, and uh, so I went. I actually hadn't even seen El Mariachi, so I was like, i got to see the last movie of the trilogy. So I went the day it came out. I was the only one in the theater. And I'm sitting there watching. It was the last 10 minutes of the movie, and the film broke. Oh, my God. And I complained, and I said, can you fix it so I can watch it? And they're like, no. We can't, like, start. We'd have to, like, start the movie all over again. I was like, are you serious? I feel like that happened to me once, but I don't remember I feel like every movie theater employee sounds exactly like that, too. Every every movie theater employee that I've ever known. I've only known two people that have ever been excited to work in a movie theater. And that was uh, the folks over at Flagship in New Bedford yeah. when we dealt with Melissa and Enrique. Uh, but everybody else is kind of like, yeah, yeah. Extra butter, really? Yeah, well, <laughs> doesn't look like you don't look like you need nachos there, Fred. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> so the movie breaks, and, and I, I ask if they can just like fix it so I can watch It's the last 10 minutes of the movie. The conclusion of the film is like, no, we can't do the We have to start it all over again. So I had to leave the theater not knowing how it ended. That's horrible. I know it was very bad. And then I asked somebody when you know when we became friends with people that worked at the movie theater. I asked them about that. They're like, they could have fixed that. They could have picked it right. That wouldn't have been a problem. Mm-hmm. So at least now Lazy. movies are digital. It's a little bit easier. <laughs> and people wonder why I pirate things off the internet. Not that you're admitting to that. My popcorn doesn't cost eleven dollars at my house. <laughs> But uh, and speaking of pirating things off the internet, I hope everybody out there has had a chance to see Ghost Stalkers. Uh, <laughs> well, it's been all over the place. It's been uh, you know people have been saying to me like, oh, why are you promoting that? People can download it because you can. The network put it up there for you to download. Right, it so, wouldn't be free unless. So many be. people. Uh, Is it a, internationally a abbreviated version? No, on, it's on the, full, the full on YouTube. It's the cool. entire episode. Uh, you can also download it from Google Play for free. You can download it from iTunes for free. You can download it from Amazon for a dollar ninety nine. Because a lot of people, because of Ghost Adventures being a worldwide phenomenon, and Nick Roth, the executive producer of Ghost Stalkers, being you know recognized worldwide and having fans all over the place. They had to make it available for people through the internet because they don't have Destination America. So, in order for them to see the show, they had to watch it through these other means. And instead of having everybody pirate it, why not put it out there so mm-hmm. that people can download it and enjoy it? And the reaction has just been tremendous. So, thank you to everybody that tuned in. And if you are a fan of the show, if you liked it, be sure to tune in tomorrow night and make sure that you tell everybody that you know to tune in tomorrow night because. You know, there's no Peyton Manning historic football game happening up against it, so let's see if we can get some <laughs> some, uh, some big ratings for tomorrow night's show. And uh, we'll definitely be live tweeting the stars of the show, John Tenney, Chad Lindbergh. They'll be tweeting David Roundtree, the show's technical advisor, and myself will all be live tweeting during the program. So it's a chance to find out a little bit more about the process it was really of the good. episode. It, you liked it? I did. I did have to watch it during the day the next day. That's true. I was watching it, and uh, I think I made it maybe five to eight minutes in, and I realized my husband fell asleep, and I was in the in the dark by myself. <laughs> so I had to shut it off. But um, it was excellent. I think it's different than anything I've ever seen before for paranormal television. And even, you know, sending it out to my friends, family, they all came back and said, it's so spooky, we can't wait till next week. You know, when's it coming on again? And making sure that they all have DVR set and everything. So I think it's... It's going to be interesting to watch episode number two on Monday during the day. 
Well, I appreciate that. I mean, when I'm doing my end of the job, you know, I'm just accumulating all the information, the history, mm-hmm. writing it out there, giving them ideas for things that they can do while filming. And, and between Nick as the executive producer and having the original vision of the program and just the great crew that works on the show with John right. and Chad and Dave at the location – Everything that they put together, it really was. And people were were tweeting about it, and, and it's the way that I felt watching it. It's like you're watching a horror movie. But it's a TV show. That's also true at the same time. Right. So and they're, they're taking things in a different direction than some of these other shows have gone. They're trying different things. And you know that you're doing something right when you end up getting the attention of the soup on E. Yes, that was cool. So when they decide to actually make fun of the show, then that. you know that yeah. you're doing something right. You know you made right. it. Yeah. <laughs> And so the clip of Chad being told to be a man uh, by a ghost on an EVP, you know, that made it to the soup. And that was a really cool EVP, though. It was. I mean, they got some great stuff happening in that episode, and not everything made it into the show either. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was pretty good, especially when you look at it as being... Now, a lot of people are coming out and saying that, well, you know, this is... It seems kind of funny that he gets this EVP on his first investigation for ghost stalkers in the first 10 minutes of the show, and, you know, he gets this EVP telling him to man up when obviously he was so scared. Mm-hmm. seems a little too convenient. I don't think I'm giving away too much information if I tell you. It wasn't the first episode that was shot. Right. It was well, actually no, the second Comcast episode. Comcast actually said season one, episode two. Yeah, because they had it yep. confused because they had the original order. So that was actually the second episode that was shot, and that was actually an all-night investigation. Mm-hmm. So just because it looks like in the first five minutes, Chad walked in there and the ghost told him to man up, that wasn't necessarily the case. No, you've you know, got to cut it so, down, just right. like every other TV show out there, whether paranormal or not. But what a lot of investigators are coming out and saying about Ghost Stalkers is they appreciate the fact that it looks more like a real investigation. Yes. There is a lot of sitting around waiting for something to happen. There is. It's just a condensed version of that. They're not going to show you, you know, four hours of sitting there in the dark, but they'll show you 40 seconds right. of sitting there in the dark waiting. And uh, so it's a chance to see kind of the reality of an investigation. Uh, and also, a lot of people are pra- – see, I thought the backlash, if you wanted to ask me honestly, like what I thought would be the problem for a lot of people, I thought the backlash was going to be on the fact that John and Chad each spend a night alone in the location. Really? I thought people were going to come back and say that's very irresponsible. You know, we as paranormal investigators would never go in alone because you can't verify that the evidence isn't something that was created by that person. And right. because it's dangerous to put somebody in that situation where they're alone in the dark and they don't know what could happen. I thought that was going to be the sticking point for a lot of people. But a lot of folks have come back and said that's what makes it unique and different. And See, that's what drew That's her. what I think. Only because... Yes, they're alone inside the location, but the other partner, whether, you know, Chad's inside and John's outside, making sure that he's okay, you know, if there's an emergency or something like that, just like the panic button, they have a panic button. Yes. So they do have something that, you know, alerts them to, is there an issue, Um, safety, things like that. But I think what makes the show what it is, is... Chad's personality, first of all, is totally different than John Tenney's personality, which I think the dynamic between the two of them is amazing for the show. And on top of it, going in by yourself without the camera crew, because, well, I mean, on paranormal shows in the past, the camera crew's either gotten in the way or, you know, things have happened or you never know what can happen. This way you actually know that the the person that's experiencing everything is experiencing it by themselves and they're filming it by themselves. I think a problem with paranormal shows in general is somebody says, what was that? And you see the camera flip around and you miss everything. Mm -hmm. You don't miss it in this show. You see everything that they're seeing. You're seeing their raw emotions, their raw fear, especially in Chad. And like, I love how cool, cool, collected, calm, uh, 
John Tenney is. But even so, when I think I think when he actually experiences something, or like toward the end of the episode where he he was shoved, you see the dynamic on his face change, and it shows a different type of emotion. It's a different type of fear. So it's really cool. And uh, and I'm sorry, Moni, is you well. Your backlash about people going in there and doing this stuff alone. Many of us that did this back in the day, it was just you, right. You know, so and, and I agree. I think that there's nothing wrong with going in alone, and I, I agree that that's a perfectly fine way to investigate. But I think the problem is, is a lot of the modern mentality of investigating is that you can't go in and do it alone because right. that's been preached by some of the other television shows. You know, we would never do this, but we'd never go in alone. You know, ghost hunters don't go in alone. Always have to go in with another team member. Everybody investigates in pairs. You have very impressionable young adults that are watching these TV shows that'll think it's okay to do something like that. So I understand why you think that that might have been. The backlash, but I see the other side of it. And I think the other part too that makes it different is the fact that you, you know you can tell pretty much from the beginning that they're not they're a, a, a duo, but mm-hmm. they're not a team. Yes. So you don't expect them to have to investigate together. They don't have to both be there. Uh, and I think that that kind of, and they each are unique individuals, and they each yes. bring unique perspectives to the investigation. And I you know I can talk about it in this manner because a lot of what you saw at home is stuff that I I mean I've seen this episode yes. before because I was at the premiere, but. For all the episodes going forward, you know, I'm going to be watching it right along with everybody else. So I only know what's on the page mm-hmm. going into it in terms of, you know, here's the history, here's the hotspots. So I don't see what happens with the dynamic. I don't see what happens with their uh, own emotions and their own perspectives on what goes on. And I think that, you know, you've seen a lot of people come out and say, well, you know, look at Chad Lindbergh. He gets the opportunity to go into these haunted places and he's a wuss and he cries mm-hmm. and he gets upset and he gets scared. And but that happens. Wouldn't that be a lot of people when yes. they go into those situations? And isn't part of becoming an investigator being able to overcome that? I think, I mean, I still scream when I see a ghost standing in front of me. Or if I'm in the dark, I never go first. Right. Everybody that knows that has been out with me, I don't go out anywhere into a dark room by myself. I, I have just been here with you in the studio after the yes. show, and you'd be like, I don't want to walk out to the door by myself tonight. No, because it's pitch black in here. I don't. I mean, I see spirits easier in the dark, so that's why. But um, it, it's not enjoyable for me. I don't like the dark at all. So I feel like his reactions or the way that he responds to different things is totally normal. I think that's most of America. And, and I think that you'll see as it goes on, and and, uh, and John and Chad and Dave have all come out and said, you know, you will see that mm-hmm. change as things go on, as he became more comfortable and as he became more connected That's the best part, I think, of a, a series is watching someone grow like that. And I, I think that too many of these other shows have kind of had a... They've tried to have the person as a fully formed character. I was going to say, like a set character. The you know, whole like, this is this is your role. Yep. Your role is to be... And you go back and listen, we've talked to Brian Harnois about it in the past. I was and, just going to say... And all... Run. Hey, for all of Brian's problems, and, and, and the dude has had some trouble over the years. He's, yep. he's gotten himself into some situations. But, you know, I do believe him when he said that in some degree, to some degree, he was pigeonholed into a role. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who knew his stuff going into that, and he was portrayed as somebody that didn't, because right. that's what they felt was the working dynamic. Now, Taps can tell you that that's not the way that they saw him. You know, they didn't right. think of him as that way, or else they never would have brought him along on these investigations, but that's the way that the people who were filming the show shaped it. Yeah, I I think with this show, at least, it's a little bit more free from the producer 
uh, aspect of things. You know, the, the we have to fill this or we have to fill that or we have to make sure this is, you know, what happens or this has to happen every single episode. I think that's what ruins it. And uh, it, it doesn't really, I mean, a lot of folks are saying it's gritty, it's raw, it looks real, especially the investigations. That's because John and Chad are the ones filming them themselves. There's nobody else in there with them. And uh, as we found out when we've tried to film mm-hmm. things ourselves it you know if you don't really know what you're doing it's it looks gritty and raw and real because you're it's so worried about what's happening real. <laughs> the camera is just kind of like oh yeah oh and by the way i have to film this i love them on social media too and their individuality and um i've been following john tenney more so i don't even know if he shows up on my newsfeed, we'll say, mm-hmm. and the stuff that he puts out, you know, how he personalizes things to his, you know, his followers or lets them know exactly what's going on during the episode. You know, there's no hidden anything. And I love the the picture that he shared the other day of some people enjoy black T-shirts and just, you know, generic clothes or whatever. I prefer to investigate in a trench coat and a tie. And he shared a picture of himself from 1987 in the same <laughs> the same outfit. Yeah, and that's, so I think it's really cool. Like you stick to yourself. You are who you are. I, I love the fact that each person has been able to have their own personality shine through, mm-hmm. not only in the show but in the promotion of the show, yes. being involved in social media. And I think this is probably. And I've you know been critical of paranormal shows in the past, and I know that a lot of that will come back and bite me in the ass now because people will say, well, you're involved in one now, but I really do think that this one is different. But I think your views about other paranormal shows were shared amongst anybody that was listening. And I expressed a lot of these concerns and Mm -hmm. the ways that I saw paranormal shows with Nick when we were originally discussing everything that was going on. You know, this is just what I, what I said to him is like, well, here's what I see is the problem. And he's like, dude, I hear you. You know, here's what I'm thinking. And I was like, the first time I sat in on the phone call where he pitched the original idea to me, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what is missing. I don't know if it's necessarily, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time if it was going to necessarily play out that way because mm-hmm. it sounds great in theory, but you wonder how it's going to look on the screen. You never know. Yeah. But it looks exactly like the way he had envisioned really it and described cool. it. And what what I've really appreciated about the guys on social media is you have Chad, you know, responding to people who yes. are saying that he was crying, and he's like, "I own that. I, it happened." And I think that's cool. And right? I don't feel that way anymore. And you'll see that. And you have John. John Tenney writing a blog about his mm-hmm. impressions of the first episode and what happened. Dave Roundtree writing, uh, addressing all the technical aspects of it, right. which is something that you don't really see in some of the other shows. You don't. They are so involved, but because they want to be, not because they have to be. And they love to explain, you know, their heart and their soul is in this in the series is what it comes across as. So I think that that dynamic alone puts them aside from every other show that is out there. And I think Nick Groff being who he is and coming from where he came from, he understands in a different aspect than just some regular producer that just wants to put a television show up and that's it. You know, let's I think this will sell. Let's do this. He has the background knowledge and I think the, that's what makes it. This what it was ne- the discussions were never I want to create a different TV show. Right. That does something differently. The discussions were always I want to show what it's really like to yep. investigate. So paranormal investigation was always discussed first and foremost with everything else kind of coming afterwards. And the vision being that you can show that and people will be entertained by it. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, you, you'll see people saying, you know, don't defend, don't defend yourself mm-hmm. against critics. That's like the, the one thing that you don't want to get wrapped up in on the Internet. Moniz, we've had it happen, especially in the early days of the show, where so I go back to the Commander Sani Sito episode where... <laughs> 
the, the only time I've ever seen Moniz really lose his cool on the air, and justifiably so, when you know he called out he called out Commander San Isidro, but not in a mean-spirited way. Mm-hmm. Just said, you know, some of the facts that you're saying don't match up with the facts that are known about the case. Correct. And so he came out and said that, and she argued, and he got upset, and she got upset, and it turned into a little something. And then people were attacking him on the internet. Mm-hmm. People just killing him on the message board, her army of, of yes. fans, which I never would have thought. Commander San Isidro, a reincarnated Roswell alien, well, apparently, would actually have. You know, a commander needs some sort of, you know, following. Somebody to command, right, sure. So he, you know, he got kind of sucked into that a little bit. And the one rule that people would tell you is, you know, don't respond to internet trolls, don't respond to the critics, don't give them fuel for their fire. And I would also think the same thing for John and Chad, but really they found a way to kind of explain to people who question things about the show and say, you know, I don't like this, I don't like that. They found a way to come back and say, well, but here's why. Yes. And here's what you're going to see. And so it's, you know, so instead of saying, well, don't defend yourself because that's just going to suck you into the hole, it's almost like they've been able to at least. It's an explanation rather than. Than an excuse. Yes. Yeah. I like it. I like how involved they are. So I know that uh, some of our listeners uh, will get mad if we just talk about Ghost Stalkers the entire time. <laughs> but right, but you do have a whole entire new list of listeners from all true, over the world. That's true, and there are people who are tuning so. in for the first time, and these are some of the questions that they'll have. And if anybody has any questions and you'd like to call in, it doesn't have to be about this. It can be about anything. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Matt Costa, I know that you, you're completely cut off from television, so I don't think you yeah. have the chance to see it. Mm-hmm. I did actually see it. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. What did you think? I thought it was good. Yeah. I don't usually watch um, paranormal shows. You so being a skeptical I person, I know that, you know, you're watching yeah. some of it and being like, really? Come on. <laughs> but, yeah, well, uh, um, I mean, he got, didn't he got scratched in that episode? Yeah, John Tenney did, yeah. yeah. Or, I thought it was Chad. No, no, no well, it was, it, it was, Chad got scratched outside okay uh in the near where they think the the uh body parts were buried but john was the one that they showed the scratch of upstairs where something got him and um which by the the way the chair rocking was really interesting that creeped me out yeah that creeped me out so bad because i don't know if it was like the doll (laughs) or whatever but well dolls are creepy anyway exactly but by the way i'm friends with van on facebook i'm friends with i follow the whispers estate i'm part of the whispers estate public and private Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. I see all the pictures from people that go and investigate there. People get scratched there all the time. People were getting scratched before they yes. saw this episode of Ghost Talkers. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been part of the phenomena that goes on there. There's there, there's definitely uh, a habit of people getting scratched there. And, and, but yeah, you're right about that rocking chair. When I first watched that, I was like, whoa, come yeah, on. Because yeah. the original cut that I saw was a little bit different. Uh, in terms of the way that they like, kind of mm-hmm. put that right in your face. So it was a little bit kind of scarier for me when I saw it. And I was like, well, that would probably freak me out. Because, <laughs> you know, you'll notice there's not a lot of movement on anything else the rest of the time. No, it was it was a really cool shot. And I was laying in the dark, you know, and shut like, it off. Hello? And I get a text message from my father that says, no more rocking chairs in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, I'll turn the light on now. <laughs> Wait till I fall asleep. Hugging the dog. And- <laughs> yes. 
I got a question. Now, you say that people keep getting scratched there. Are they scratched in the same place and on their body as well as location? Uh, a lot of people, no, it's, it's different parts of the house. Uh, what, but a lot of them, it's kind of the small of the back area. Uh, but I saw one where somebody was scratched kind of across the shoulder blades. You know, because my initial thought. But it's is, in, on the back. Mainly, yes, the, the ones that I've seen, but okay. I, I've heard reports of people getting scratched otherwise. And uh, a friend of a friend actually works there now, so we're going to be getting a lot more reports coming in too. But uh, you know, I get concerned when I see this. I'm like, well, people are backing into the same thing. There's there's a nail yeah. sticking out somewhere that people are walking into, uh, but it does happen in different locations in different parts of the house. There's a lot of the history of Whispers Estate mm-hmm. that they didn't get into in that episode. Uh, in addition to you know, it's not just a goat man that's seen there. It's also there's a, a lizard man that's seen there. Yeah. So two different type of skinwalker creatures have been spotted in the house. Uh, there's a lot of other things, and I know Moniz is kind of handicapped here because he has he's been traveling, so he hasn't had a chance to see it. But um, when you see it, you'll see a lot of parallels between other cases too, which in my mind says you know a lot of this phenomenon is probably easily tied in to the portal theory. It's quite possible that these portals are opening and these same creatures are coming through. Well, I look forward to actually seeing these episodes. And I'd be interested in getting your take, too, as somebody who, you know, I know that you have been doing this for a long time, but at the same time, uh, I know that, you know, you have your style. You have what works for you. Right. And so I'd be interested in seeing your take on the two different approaches that are being used and, and how that kind of balances. Because you, you, I mean. Oh, I'm all about people using different styles because it's data. Data is data. How you gather it is, you know. And also, you know, you'll, you'll have some pretty interesting takes, I think, on Dave Roundtree's equipment as well. And I've seen the experiment that they do in the next one. If you go to the Destination America website mm-hmm. and go to the Ghost Stalkers page, you can see a little bit of the experiment they do next and, and tomorrow night's episode. But they basically use a high-powered laser beam, not a laser grid like you and I would get off the mm-hmm. Internet, a high-powered laser beam that they put into this area w- while running a smoke machine at the same time to be able to visually see the vortex forming. That's really so that's, cool. I was actually just going to ask you, is there any sneak peeks that you can give us for tomorrow night's episode? I can only tell you what's in the trailer. So you can watch those on Destination America's website, or I tweeted them out. You can follow me at Tim Weisberg. And be sure to follow everybody on the Spooky Crew. Monies, we're going to get you a Twitter sooner or later. <laughs> You're going to have to do at least to, to take part in the discussion during the show using the hashtag SpookyLive. Uh, we do have a call on the line, so let's take that call. Let me just make sure I didn't. I gotta do this whole thing here. Where check the ID. All right, just in case there's certain people we can't take calls from here. <laughs> Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Hi. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Back in the late '70s, I was stationed at Fort Rodden. Really? Yes, and which of course none of the buildings exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was no fence. Be- between Fort Tabor, it was kind of wide open. The tunnels were wide open. And I investigated, you know, I'd go for lunch and I'd go into Fort Tabor. And you could just feel it as soon as I walked in. I'm not a medium, I'm not anything, but you could feel something was there. You can kind of just sense that presence? Right. I mean, it was big holes in the floor, and you had to be careful where you walked. I used to grab the flashlight. But uh, 
I walked into there. I walked into the tunnels were wide open back then. There was no fence or anything else, and but it was just a feeling. It used to make your your hair stand on end. It, was there? Uh, I mean, back then, as you said, you had a little bit more open access. Was there a lot of people coming in from the outside then, or because no. it was more active, was it harder for people to get in? Uh, actually, there was no fencing or anything else, so it was kind of wide open. So you could kind of just walk in from from the uh, from where the UMass uh, place is now and just walk right in. Yeah, we had a fence of, uh, around Fort Rodman. I was in the army then, and that was an active base at one time. I think it had been since the 30s. Well, I, I know that uh, with a lot of the issues that they have now, you know, they, of course, they keep the fort closed all the time itself, and they do right. have fences that they put up around Milliken. Uh, but there is, you know, there is concern not only for the the safety aspects as you mentioned even back then there being holes and and things like that but also now there's a, a different element that's in there that I'm sure has happened in the years since when you were there with all the the homeless people that are staying in there the kids that are partying in there and right. do you do you want to know what's the creepiest part about it to me is you hear all these stories you know all these stories you know people are going in there drinking you know, people are going in there. Let's face it. You know, we we have a problem in southeastern Massachusetts with heroin. People are going in there. They're shooting up in there. But when you walk in there, you don't find the needles. You don't find the empty beer cans. There's actually very little trace that people are in there doing these things. But yet we know that they are. It's very weird how that happens. Really? Yeah, I, I, I have no explanation for it other than you know I asked the volunteers if they're cleaning it up, and and they're saying no that they, they they're not going in there. So. I went down to the military, uh, military museum, and I couldn't believe it because the whole base was gone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely changed, I'm sure, since you were down there. But uh, yeah. they, they do do a great job with that museum, and it's completely kept alive by the donations of people. Uh, so anybody that goes and checks it out, you can spend yeah. a whole afternoon just per, uh, perusing the collection there and, and throw, make sure you throw a couple bucks in the in the bucket. Yeah, it's it's great now, but like I said, back in the day, I remember walking into Fort Tabor, and uh, I just went kind of on a tour by myself. <laughs> yep, man. You know? Well, we're going to be heading back down there in the spring for a paranormal uh, event, so you know, maybe maybe you'll want to pick up a ticket for that when the time comes. I would. All right. Well, thank you very much. You can go to legendtrips.com and sign up for the mailing list. You'll get first crack at them before anybody else does. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 are the numbers if anybody would like to call in or be interested in getting your thoughts on anything paranormally related. Uh, I've been sending out some, some tweets and stuff with some ideas and some discussions that we can uh, put up on the table, but I think maybe we haven't done this in a few weeks now. I don't know if we still remember how to do it. No, nope, uh, we don't. <laughs> because it's been a while. Uh, but I think it might be time for us to maybe... Just maybe get a little weird. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. What's so wonderful? Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the weekend weird. All right. First up, we have. Claw machines don't just eat toys, but they eat little boys. Oh, well. (laughs) 
We have Colin Lambert, who is 18, month, 18 months old from Tennessee, crawled into a claw machine that you would normally see um, anywhere. I, I don't see many of them anymore, but... Yeah, yeah, they're around, you know, like Red Robin's got one, and right. you, know, you see them at the mall sometimes. He Amusement was, places, yeah. Right. He was entranced by the claw machine, like a moth to flame. Crawled on in, uh, Diane O'Neill, the boy's grandmother, said that she had turned away for only a moment when the little adventurer found himself encaged. She said that all she could see was his feet. He had already crawled in. I grabbed his feet, and he kicked my hand and got in, climbed up over the glass partition, and sat down on the toys. According to the station, firefighters came and rescued the child within a matter of minutes. O'Neill said her grandson was excited to see the firefighters and even got to pick out a free toy after the ordeal. So, I don't know how, uh, that, that was only a minute that she was not watching, but, you know, I get a free toy out of it. When I was a kid, I, I, I was always playing those games, mm-hmm. you know, and I, it's kind of like, there's like a legend in my family, like me and my mom are like experts at the claw game mm-hmm. and being able to get things out of it, but they, they've made the claw game harder over the years. Yes. But uh, I will tell you that there's been more than a few occasions where I've gotten something and I thought that I won, only to have it get caught. That's terrible. In the, and so I've tried to crawl up inside there myself to be able to get it. It doesn't doesn't work so well when you're my size, but maybe when you're that age. When you're 18 months old, I'm sure it's very easy. But you know what else is a problem, apparently? What? Kittens and vending machines. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Meanwhile, she... Uh, She's over there jingling that roll of quarters in her pocket. So. I keep a secret stash now since you told my husband to take it away from me. Um, next up we have... A Chicago man was terrified to learn that a burglar wore his girlfriend's panties and stole a picture of her before fleeing the scene. The creepy crawler was caught on surveillance camera at 12.45 a.m. on September 25th rummaging, rummaging through Steve Friedman's belongings. The victim posted the security footage to YouTube. The guy didn't take any valuables that we know of. My initial reaction to seeing it was mostly disbelief, but once it sank in, I was a little scared. My girlfriend was very scared, though. If you look towards the end of the video, you could see him take a picture of her off of the table. To be sure, knowing that a a lurker has your loved one's photos is unnerving. But hey, the suspect did look pretty good in the underwear, we have to say. Police have a copy of the video, but no arrests have been made. That's kind of creepy. Kinda? Kinda. Just a little bit. (laughs) And last up we have... This gets weird. A Canadian man (laughs) has been charged after border agents at the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel found more than 50 turtles strapped to his body and hidden between his legs. Um... The Detroit News Report say that Windsor, Ontario resident, I'm going to butcher this, Kai Zhu, was charged Wednesday with smuggling. I'm sure he would rather he got his name wrong. Yeah, probably. Um, But you can Google it. Turtles. It's just... Yeah, no, he's like, you can mispronounce my name all you want, in case my (laughs) friends and family are listening. He was charged with smuggling, illegal trading, and exporting. A bond hearing was scheduled Thursday in federal court in Detroit. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agent received a tip about a large box sent to a Detroit postal center. Court documents say that it was addressed to Zoo and, e- uh, and mailed from Alabama. Agents were watching the postal center on August 5th when he arrived. The turtles were found after his SUV recrossed the border and was stopped in Windsor. So, 
four turtles. You hear that a lot, like people just strapping pets to their That's body. That's not the first like story smuggling. that I've, I've read. Like, I don't like understand. That. Like, are they that sought after? Birds, lizards, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff, yeah. I don't know. There's going to be some money in it, that's for sure. I guess so. But I feel bad for the poor animals. To being that close to that guy? Oh, or? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or cats stuck in vending machines. Well, it, hey, it could be worse. I mean, it was turtle eggs. <laughs> oh, it was turtles. Tur- turtles themselves. So, I mean, <laughs> any chance that uh, when, when they arrested him, is, is this what he said? No. I've got a I'll just put that in a loop. I don't care. <laughs> All right. You're better than the last time you played. But yeah, 50 turtles strapped to his body. That's going to be one turtle I thought now. I hope they weren't snapping turtles. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, that does it for the weekend weird for this week. If you have a strange story you would like us to share, just tweet it to us at SpookySC. Use the hashtag WeekendWeird, and maybe we'll share it on the show. And uh, speaking of sharing, coming up a little bit later on at the end of the program, we will share with you the chance to win some New England Legends DVDs. The latest edition premieres Wednesday at 8 o'clock on Rhode Island PBS about mysteries. I'm sorry, excuse me, Maritime Mysteries, uh, which is why we were discussing Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman earlier. That is one of the featured locations, along with the Newport Stone Tower there and uh, the uh, Rose Island Lighthouse. So that'll be a a great maritime-themed episode with Jeff Belanger in the studio for the Pledge Drive on Rhode Island PBS as well. And if you pledge, you'll have the chance to win, uh, uh, you'll have the chance to get the DVDs as well as his book, The World's Most Haunted Places. So... You'll want to save up and make a donation for that. Plus, you get all those uh, great PBS, you know, uh, membership yeah. privileges. <laughs> they'd always talk about like great museum discounts and all that. So you'll yep. get all you get that. like the uh, the the PBS umbrella. The that tote was bag. always like the uh, yeah the tote bag. <laughs> My grandparents always had the yeah. tote bag, and they had the sticker on the back of their car that they donated to PBS. All right. Well, yeah. if anybody would like to call in five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. 877-996-1420. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hello, love. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. As Fort Tabor, my uncle was in the uh, National Guard, and I was like maybe 18, 17, and it was in the uh, early 70s, and uh, there were at least four hangings that they called the National Guards out at Fort Tabor. Hmm. One man was hung, murdered, and three committed suicide. Wow. I've never, in all the research that I've done, I've never heard that either. It must be something that they kind of kept buried, you know, kept secret. Well, they might have at the time, but my uncle was there, and, well, I had two uncles that were, they had come back from the Marines, and they went into the, uh, they used to be in the armory all the time. So four people, one hung and three by suicide, is that what you said? Yes. And uh, and this was, again, what time period? In the uh, late seven, in the early 70s, hmm. late 60s, early 70s. That's very strange, and that's just something else that we can add into the, uh, the mysterious legend of the area, and... Uh, again, like I, I, nobody's ever mentioned that to me before, so it's it's got to be something that they've kind of kept kept hidden. 
Yeah, because I don't know why they did. There was all just a small article in the paper about maybe a, a two-by-four hmm. article in the paper about it. And I, they didn't give the names of the persons who died. Or they gave an age of 43, 19, 21, and 20. So these were all at the same time then? These were all simultaneously within weeks of one another. Three suicides and one intentional murder by hanging. Right. And, and any, any speculation uh, on the part of anybody or, that you talked to that would know why this happened, what actually went down? Uh, no, all we knew was that the National Guard was called in to uh, cut down and remove the bodies. Wow. Well, I will definitely see what else I can find out about that, even if it's something that I can't really share publicly. I'll at least see if uh, there's a little bit more information available. Yeah, well, then they kept everything so quiet. Sure. We didn't hear things like we hear today. Well, I'm fortunate enough to work at the newspaper, so if there's anything in the archives, I'll, I'll at least be able to get access to now, it. So. You do a great job, sweetheart. I'm in my late 70s, so I listen to you all the time. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I can't do without WBSN. That well, puts me to sleep and it wakes me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, I appreciate you saying that we wake you up, too, and that we just don't put you to sleep. <laughs> no, I, I always leave my radio on, and it, it's like a sleeping pill for me. It's awesome. Well, thank you very much, and you have a yeah. great night. You, too. Take care. It's it, Yeah, it's always nice when people say that they wake up, too. So it's not just yes. that we put you to sleep, because... You know, I've been accused of putting people to sleep before in the past. My favorite is when people tune in on Saturday mornings and they say to me, I love tuning into your show because I listen to you and I hear you and I know it's Saturday morning and then I can just roll over and go back to sleep. I'm like, <laughs> Nice to know that uh, I'm, I'm talking to somebody who's sleeping. But uh, whatever. <laughs> They're still listening. I don't care. The radio's still tuned in. That's all I care you about. You do a good job. Thank you. I listen. Well, you do, because uh, I, I always see you, you know, I was like, well, I'm out in the car, I'm going to listen. And then you're like, what the hell are you talking about? I think it's, so. I, I don't know how you carry on the conversations that you do sometimes. I have severe ADD. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> 508 we had mentioned earlier that you were up in, in was it the Lemonster UFO conference? Yes, yeah, Lemonster UFO. And I noticed that they had some, some different people uh, that we haven't seen around the area coming up to speak. Uh, Who did you get the chance to actually uh, spend some time with last weekend? Well, of course, you got the regulars like uh, Santon Freeman and um, he he's always a trip. He, the the scary thing about him being there is he had just had a heart attack a few months earlier, and he's a trooper. And uh, you have Kathleen Martin, who was there. Uh, she's Betty, niece's, uh, Betty Hill's niece, mm-hmm. and uh, her and Stanton had written a number of uh, books together. And uh, another person that I found extremely intriguing is uh, Steve LaPlume who had a sighting at the Bentwaters base 21 days after the original three-night event. And this was witnessed by somebody else. And he talked about the other people that had their events happen. And he verified that, you know, there were, let's call it intelligence people roaming around the base taking, you know, all kinds of, let's say, uh, backdoor type of interviews with people and stuff like that. Uh, There were... 
uh, a, a number of people that were lit, they were definitely uh, entertaining. Let's put it that way. So, in in relation to the Bentwaters case, then once. Once everything had gone down and once the, the military had kind of come in and were trying to, you know, uh, whatever cover-up they were trying to put on, whatever type of story they were trying to get everybody on the same page, people were still having sightings uh, even after that? The, the, the sightings apparently continued on for a few months, even while they were still investigating the people. And now what mo- most people don't know about the case is that following the first major event there the three night event Mm -hmm. two days two days after the last event there one of the people that was involved in let's call it the surrounding of one of the craft he couldn't take it he was a um uh basically a born again type person and it it really affected really messed with his belief systems his his whole outlook on life and they put him out on the flight line with an m16 and he went into one of the bunkers and blew the top of his head off wow and larry was the first responder to the you know to the event larry warren yeah. yeah several other people wound up having other severe issues as well well i know that uh, of course the 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 story that we hear is that the reason why these ships we'll call them why these yep. uh, particular visitors might have been targeting that base was because they were storing nuclear weapons there that is confirmed and and so if that's the case did they move the nukes after that three-day event the the, the famous sighting that everybody knows yes. as well so they that, were they weren't just moved they had to be repaired so they were taken away from the the Bentwaters base. No, they were serviced on base. Okay. They brought specialists in from Germany uh, to work on them. Uh, a lot of their gimbal systems were highly messed up, which made them inoperable. In other words, they wouldn't be able to trigger or operate. Uh, the amount of nuclear weapons that were there were in well exceeded what they were even permitted. In the country right, legally, that, that was the concern. Was that they thought it was you know they were being spied on because they were not right. following things in the up and up. Right. But uh, in that time, then between the three day event and and the sighting of this gentleman, Mister Plume, that you yeah, talked yeah. about, in that time, did they remove the all the nukes during no, that time period? They okay. were still there because the events that were going on in Europe at that time were still heating up. This is the height of the solidarity movement in. Uh, the the strikes in the shipyards in Gdansk and, and stuff like that, and the Russians had moved literally thousands and thousands of troops and tanks on the border. So these visitors could have still been there for the same purpose, to see what was going on with those weapons. Correct. Why are all of these, you know, hot pieces of equipment there? What's going on? Hmm. Yeah. Well, it just adds another layer to the story, and I, I just hope that Peter Robbins isn't going to start launching into Left at East Gate 2, because I know that he spent a, a good decade of his life working on the first book. More than that, he just put another book together that's free online, and what I'll do is I'll forward you the information. You can leave the link up. It's a review of one of the latest uh, Bentwaters books released by one of the other people, and it helps correct shall we say, mm-hmm. some of the inaccuracies in that book. And we'll leave that at that. Sure. <laughs> but we'll put it out there for people to be able to check out for themselves. Right. Let them make their own choice. 
And uh, so it seems like it was a great conference though, overall. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely was a good conference. Uh, Steve Fermani, I don't know if you – I think you have met him once, uh, local d- director of MUFON for, for Massachusetts. Really nice guy. He put on a very good event. And uh, it, the mayor of the town actually got up and spoke, and it was a pretty neat little event. Well, they were actually having here in New Bedford the, this past weekend – uh, they've been having the Connecting for Change conference. And as a result of that, you know, they've been bringing in a lot of different, you know, different thoughts and different uh, approaches and different mm-hmm. beliefs into the city. And it's it's been great to hear the reaction of people who have been going to some of these events. I know that Greg was covering some of them here at WBSM earlier. Uh, but I have the chance on Tuesday to talk to Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience and has now proceeded to uh, study near-death experiences, and he's written the book Proof of Heaven mm-hmm. and now uh, The Map of Heaven, his new book. So we're going to actually have him joining us in, I think, probably in December, like right around Christmas, because it's a good good time to really talk about spirituality right. and, and, and those types of uh, topics. And plus, we want to make sure, of course, that, Stephanie, that you're back, because yes. this is going to be the last week that you're with us for a while. Yes, it is. You've got some other plans. She's actually, I don't know if you know about this, this whole thing is a ruse. That's like one of those pregnancy suits. (laughs) It's all just so she can go start her own show and compete against us on another station. It's because I secretly hate you. That's exactly I knew it all along. I could tell. (laughs) So uh, the... But you'll you'll be gone for a few weeks, of course, I to will. experience the miracle of life, and then you're going to come back to the disappointing crash of being part of Spooky South Coast again. <laughs> there better not be a crash. <laughs> I will be calling in. It will be a crash for you when this is what you come back to. No. After the leaving, only crashes will be UFOs. Just remember, okay? Oh. Just remember, for all these past months, you've been with us since well, since May. Yep. So for all these past months, all that we've been doing here is getting ready, getting you ready to be a mom. By go. taking care of us three children, <laughs> we have helped you prepare. That's okay. The only problem is we haven't really turned Brendan into much of a dad. No. No, no he's we, not here. We now. just kind of suck him down with yeah. us. Never he's played he's the fourth once. child. <laughs> you were never there for me. After this is over, we're all going to get together and sing Cats in the Cradle with our arms around each other. <laughs> well, I will be back eventually, and I'm looking forward to having Dr. Alexander on. And we're going to try and connect with you a little bit, too, while you're out. We'll see yes. if we can maybe do it via Skype, depending on, on the baby's sleep schedule, you know, yeah, and on Brendan's home. sleep schedule, too, because right. we don't just, want you to keep him up all we'll night. leave him home with the baby. I'll come in and talk paranormal. He's he's already making breastfeeding motions over there. <laughs> so, yeah, well, of course, you know, you can come back whenever you are ready to do so. Uh, but for the rest of you, we'll be here each and every week. Uh, and, again, if you are new to the show, if this is your first time hearing it, we've been doing this now since January of 2006. So we are about to celebrate our ninth anniversary coming up in January of this year. We'll be entering our tenth year of broadcasting the program. So that's pretty special. Not a lot of radio shows last that long, let alone paranormal radio shows. So. So uh, you want to definitely stay tuned for all the things that we have planned coming up. But if you are new to the show or do you want to check out everything that we've done before, it's all available. It's all free. You can go to iTunes. You can go to anywhere the podcasts are found. You can go to our website, and you'll be able to download past episodes. There is a little bit of a problem with the iTunes archive. 
because of our podcast server, they can only hold the last 100 episodes of the show. So what they have done is they have created an alternate feed that if you go to our website, you'll see a, a post on the slider at the top that says, Our Archives Have Moved. When you click that, you will get the RSS feed of all those episodes, and you can go in there and click them and download them. It's a big jumbled mess, but it's the only way that they can get them to us for right now. Uh, but you'll be able to check those out and download them for yourself. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of free episodes for you, thousands of hours of the program for you to check out. Some great shows, some that we're proud of, some that we're not so proud of. But they're still out there anyway because we don't hide anything for you. And uh, you'll be able to listen to those. And you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on YouTube.com slash Spooky South Coast. And we try and get the video up there for most of the episodes for the last couple of years. It doesn't always work out. But we do what we can to make sure that we at least give you some sort of video component. And, of course, we'll just be here every Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. I think we just got sued. But we'll be here live every Saturday night. Uh, to talk with you going forward. We do get moved around a bit for sports, but we try and make the best of it. So I want to say thank you to our guest tonight, uh, Styles White, for joining us. Thank you to everybody that called in, and we'll be back next week. Reminder, tomorrow night, 10 o'clock, Destination America, Ghost Stalkers. If you're not in America, you're listening somewhere else, we'll make sure that we have it... Uh, you know, we'll have it out there for you on YouTube, on iTunes, on Google Play, everywhere else. You'll be able to catch the show. Watch it. Tweet about it. Talk about it. We'll be live tweeting tomorrow night. Tell everybody that you know, even if people aren't into the paranormal. <laughs> let them know. They might like this show. Uh, it's not just about walking around in the dark with some fancy gadgets. It's about the human condition. It is. All right. <laughs> well, that does it for this week's <laughs> show. For Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay safe. <laughs>